This podcast is not meant to be professional advice of any kind. It's meant to be informative and entertaining. If you make any changes to your life, see the appropriate professional before you do so. Hello, and welcome to SuperAge. My name is David Harry Stewart. I'm the founder of Aegist. At SuperAge, we help you live better and become the best version of yourself. And who doesn't want a SuperAge? Today's show is brought to you by Inside Tracker. Go to insidetracker.com slash age to save 20% on all their products. Get yourself a dashboard to your inner health. Welcome to episode 94 of the SuperAge podcast. It is great to have you with us. This will be dropping on July the 27th, 2022. Today on the show, I am very happy we have Patrick McEwen. And Patrick and I are going to be discussing breathing. Patrick has a book out called Oxygen Advantage, and he has a number of videos um, talking about breathing and the advantage of carbon dioxide, its relationship to oxygen, and the downsides to incorrect breathing, including some pretty serious things, dementia, um, sleep apnea, a lot of bad stuff. So, but we can correct it just by simply breathing better. I love these sort of things that, that, that have, you know, can have pretty serious long-term consequences, but are super easy to fix. So he's going to be on the show in just a few minutes, and we're going to talk all about breath and how to breathe correctly. This week, we're coming to you from the lovely city of Los Angeles, California, where I will be for about a week. We have meetings with the team and meetings with some of the other people that we work with, some of our clients. And, you know, Zoom is great. Zoom is just so awesome. But it's also really great to see people in person. You know, maybe you don't have to do it every day, but it's, you really need to have that human connection. I don't, I don't know what the right rhythm is. You know, maybe it's once a week, once a month, once a quarter. I don't know. Um, but I know that I really enjoy it. And I also, you know, really enjoy the freedom that Zoom gives us. And I'm very curious how this is playing out with all of your work lives. Are you in the office? Are you exclusively on Zoom? Have you left your job and reinventing yourself as something new? I, I would love to know. Um, and I'm thinking if we could do a little poll, maybe use our Google call-in number. It's 801-871-5291. And, you know, just leave a few seconds of a message and, and just let us know um, how this sort of new sort of hybrid work situation that a lot of us have, how that's working out. Do you like it? Do you not like it? Um, we'd, we'd love to hear from you. 801-871-5291 is that number again. And of course, being in Los Angeles again, although I used to live there, I lived there for a long time, it, it invigorates me with a sort of new place energy, which I think is one of the great things about traveling. And I understand that you know travel at the moment with the airlines and some of the other complications can be rather difficult. But I, I think that there's a, there's a lot of value to just getting out of wherever you are and going to some, you know, new place. And I guess that means if you're used to living in a city, well, maybe you go out of nature for a while. Or if you go to another city or like myself, if you're currently living in a place that's very nature intensive, well, downtown Los Angeles, that's a very different place. And so... Yeah, new place energy, good thing. It's good to have new experiences, meet new people, listen to new things, eat new food, new experiences, and essentially new memories. Because, you know, at the end of the day, that's what we're left with, memories. So we want to make as many of those and make them as good as we can. 
So we're going to get with Patrick McEwen in just a moment after a quick word from our sponsor. Today's show is brought to you by Inside Tracker. Inside Tracker is the dashboard to your inner health. Just as a car has a dashboard so you can tell how fast you're going and how much gas you have, you need a dashboard for your inner health. You need to know what's going on inside your body if you're going to optimize it. You need some way to monitor what's going on inside your body. And then once you know what's going on inside your body, you need some way to help optimize that. And this is what I get from Inside Tracker. With their 43 biomarkers that they're testing, along with the genetics that they test me for, I know what I should be eating to really optimize where I want to be. And I get to choose that target of where I want to be. Am I working on brain health? Am I working on longevity? Is there something with my fitness that I'm interested in optimizing? The app will make recommendations personalized to me based on my blood work and my genetics. And that's something that I just think is invaluable. Um, it's not a replacement for seeing my doctor. It's not a replacement for any of the other professionals in my life. It is an additive, but it is an additive that is with me every day, all day. And I can consult it and I can see what should I be doing right now. And then I can test again and see what changes have happened. If you go to insidetracker.com slash ageist, you'll save 20% on all their products. Hey, Patrick, how are you today? Oh, it's good, David. No complaints. I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> all right it's been um we've been trying to get you on for a little while and I'm, and I'm very happy that we had the time to speak with you today sure that's great yeah i think it's uh it's quite topical at the moment breathing you know so we'll have a good conversation well the alternative to breathing is not so great so um yeah i'm in favor that's of breathing. for sure yeah that's for sure <laughs> that's for sure yeah yeah but the, the real question is how do you breed? You know, mm. that's what it's about. Um, because many of us take it for granted and we think we're all doing it right. How do you really know whether you're doing it right or not? What's Excellent. right breathing? What is right breathing? Exactly. Um, before we get into that, tell me a little bit about your background and how you came to breathing and your sort of initial struggles. Yeah, well, initially I wasn't breathing right, put it that way. Um, and, you know, as a kid growing up and as a teenager with asthma, which is, it's very, very common. It's about 8% of the population. Your, your nose is typically stuffy as well. And because it's uncomfortable to breathe through your nose, you breathe through your mouth. So, and I'm not saying that you breathe through your mouth 100% of the time, but you are breathing through your mouth during light exercise, when you're distracted, when you're asleep. And mouth breathing is faster breathing, harder breathing, upper chest breathing. And this puts you into a fight or flight response. So as a kid growing up, my concentration was very poor. I left school at 14 initially, never to go back. My life directed me that I did go back to school, but it was one year later. I left school out of a total sense of frustration with the education system because I was a kid that wasn't able to concentrate. Now, I didn't have attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. I didn't feel I had. I wasn't hyperactive. I just could not concentrate. I was living in my head and having your attention and placing it on what the teacher is saying was, was not coming easy to me. So I got back to school, got my degree, took a lot of work because again, when your physiology 
is in a state of increased stress response, increased sympathetic drive, you know, your sleep is impacted, your state of mind is impacted, your attention is impacted, your memory is impacted. Get into the corporate world, I absolutely hated it. I have to say I hated it with a passion. I couldn't cope with it. It wasn't a corporation, but I just didn't have the ability to deal with difficult situations. I was already like already in that fight or flight response, so it doesn't take much to push you over the edge. And I'm sure there's plenty of people like that. So I came across the work of a Ukrainian doctor back in 1998. I put it into practice. It was all about nose breathing, about breathing light, breathing slow, breathing low. What, what was his name? Dr. Konstantin Buteko. Mm-hmm. And he discovered back in 1952... When he was sitting with his sick patients, he noticed that as they become sicker, they started breathing harder and faster in upper chest. And he asked the question, what's driving this? Is it that their sickness is driving this? Or is this putting them into this fight or flight response? Is it putting them into an increased sympathetic drive? Is it causing a loss of carbon dioxide from the blood? And is this then in turn feeding into their sickness? So he worked with his patients and he taught them to breathe in and out through the nose and to breathe light, that breathing becomes almost undetectable during rest, to breathe slow. And um, he found that many of his patients made good progress. So I used it initially for asthma. It changed my life, absolutely changed my life. But I also remember taping my mouth back in 1998. So I've been taping my mouth for about... 20 plus years now it's quite popular now but back then it wasn't you know and the first morning waking up I don't remember much of a difference the second morning I woke up and it was the best night's sleep I ever had so you know sometimes these things stick with you and then I changed careers and I said I'd love to be in this field and hence here I am 20 something years later and my recollection with Boteco is he he also coached athletes is that right he no, he didn't. No, he didn't. No. Uh, he was working with the Soviet space mission. Ah. Um, part of his research was with, with astronauts. So maybe that's where the, the tie-in. So I suppose you're, you're talking about pretty, you know, capable individuals. And his role was in, in what's the, you know, determining the composition of, of oxygen mm. in, the, in the capsules, in the, in the rockets. So yeah, it was interesting. And yeah, Soviet times, it was quite difficult as well. His laboratory was closed down. And what he was saying was sometimes very different to what was traditionally taught when it comes to breathing. Because very often when it's taught, when it comes to breathing, is to take that full big breath, you know. Mm-hmm. But the more air you breathe, the more oxygen that gets delivered to your tissues and cells. That's not correct. So, so let's, um, I actually, in preparation for this podcast, the last three nights I taped my mouth. Um, and uh i did maybe three or four years ago my wife told me i was starting to snore how embarrassing and so i did the mouth taping for not long maybe a couple weeks um which i have to say is looks freakier than it is like (laughs) it just looks really perverse like what are you doing yeah 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 it's a good one (laughs) Could be putting into uh yeah, it could be going a different angle with this one altogether now. So yeah. Could... <laughs> yeah. For for those of you out there who if you want to do this, um, make sure you get the don't use the duct tape. Like 
get yourself some like 3M medical tape or some proper mouth taping taper. You'll regret it in the morning, um, but very effective. So um, what I found for me was after a couple of weeks, I took it off and then the snoring had stopped. And then I just sort of naturally became a nose breathing at night, I, mm. I assume. Um, and well, you, you will yeah. know if you wake up at a moist mat in the morning. Yeah, that's right. Right. That's the trick. If you wake up and your mouth is dry, you've been breathing through yes. it all night. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so I wanted to ask you the, so I can, I, I now, because of this, I concentrate on breathing through my nose, but I, my nose has been broken a couple times through various adventures. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> so um, there's not an entirely clear passage there. Uh, and I was like, I was at the gym this morning and if I'm on the bike, it's especially hard to do running, but on the bike, I can stay. If, as long as I stay in an aerobic zone, I can inhale through the nose, but the exhaling through the nose, I find more challenging. Thoughts on that? How you breathe during physical exercise is going to be influenced by how you breathe during rest. Mm. And we use a measurement called BOLT, which is the body oxygen level test. Mm. You take a normal breath in and out through your nose, you pinch your nose, you time it in seconds until you feel the first definite desire to breathe. And then you let go, your breathing should be normal. If your BOLT score is above 25 seconds, there's an 89% chance that breathing is functional. So what does this mean? Well, it means that if your BOLT score during rest is above 25 seconds, you'll find it easier to sustain nasal breathing during physical exercise because your bolt score is telling you how fast and how hard, or at least it's giving you some indication. And if you have an individual who is breathing a little bit faster and harder during rest, well, that will translate into disproportionate breathlessness during physical exercise. Physical exercise doesn't improve your breathing patterns unless you are doing swimming or unless you do your physical exercise with your mouth closed. So initially, when you do physical exercise with the mouth closed, of course, your body is producing more carbon dioxide. And carbon dioxide is the primary stimulus to breathe. So by breathing in and out through your nose, carbon dioxide is not able to leave the body quickly enough. So it accumulates in the blood. And this way, then you feel an increased sensation of air hunger. So that's why it's a bit more difficult to do physical exercise with your mouth closed. However, if you continue doing your physical exercise with your mouth closed, your body will adapt to a higher tolerance of carbon dioxide. So then when you do physical exercise, you won't need so much air. Your ventilation reduces. Honestly, David, this has been something that has been overlooked by sports and medical professionals. I have no idea why they've overlooked this one. I'll give you a few points. Number one is dental health straight off. People who mouth breathe, runners, more prone to dental cavities, gum disease, bad breath. Trauma to the upper airways and lower airways. Your mouth does nothing. Your mouth is a hole. That's all it is. Like if somebody says there's no difference between mouth and nose breathing, well, that person doesn't have much of an idea. So all your mouth is, it's a hole for air to come straight down into your throat. Trauma to the airways. So exercise-induced bronchoconstriction is going to be much higher with mouth breathing versus nose breathing. Nose breathing has greater recruitment of the diaphragm breathing muscle 
and the diaphragm-breathing muscle provides stabilization for the spine. So functional breathing and functional movement go together. And if you're breathing mouth fast and upper chest, it reduces oxygen transfer from the lungs into the blood. But also mouth fast and upper chest breathing is activating more of fight or flight response. Whereas if you breathe nose slow and low, it improves alveolar ventilation. It's protecting the airways. It increases oxygen transfer in the blood in, from the lungs to the blood. But also when you do physical exercise with your mouth closed, when you've got increased carbon dioxide in the blood and a drop to blood pH, hemoglobin, which is the main carrier of oxygen, releases oxygen more readily. So even though when you do physical exercise with your mouth closed, you feel that you're not getting enough air, this signifies that carbon dioxide is increased in the blood. But because of the increase of carbon dioxide and drop to blood pH, red blood cells, which carry oxygen, are releasing oxygen more readily to the tissues. So your recovery is better post-physical exercise. Nose breathing also adds an extra load onto the diaphragm to help strengthen it, to improve function. So there's so much going on with nose breathing. You know, we've been writing about this for 20 years. Thankfully, <clears throat> a couple of sports medicine scientists have started getting behind it a little bit and investigating it. One is George Dallam from, I think his base is he Colorado State University or Evansville University. But uh, he got 10 recreational athletes. He had them breathe exclusively through their nose for six months. And at the end of six months, they were able to attain 100% of their work rate intensity with nose breathing versus mouth, but with 22% less ventilation. And there's a recent paper that was published in Frontiers in Physiology. Here it is here, actually. It's called Brett Tools, a synthesis of evidence-based breathing strategies to enhance human performance. I'll send it on to you. This is the stuff we've been talking about for 20 years. So thankfully, the science is starting to catch up. I actually, um, there's, uh, I go to this very sporty gym. I live in Park City, Utah, and there are a number of Olympians that train there. And mm -hmm. the, the 5K and 10K, probably the, the top five in the world train there. And when they run, mouth closed. But, um, you know, <laughs> they can run a what, four minute mile and not be winded. <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah. What, what national, what race are they? Caucasian or African origin? Um, or? Let's see. Of the five guys, uh, one is African-American. The other three are white guys. One's a Canadian. He's a, the Canadian guy just won the, the 5k in Oregon last week. Yeah, it can be you, the size of our nose is genetically influenced, but mm. it's it's also um, so people of African American origin they typically have a, a better nasal airway, yeah. and they could, for example, sprint with their mouth closed. Whereas if you're a Caucasian like myself, I've got one nostril smaller than the other, deviated yes. septum. Yeah, me too. I use a nasal <laughs> dilator, so we have a little product that we use nasal dilator. We just put it up into the nose. And it helps open up the airway to make easier breathing. I, I'm just looking around. I have one of these. I, I don't. Know, it's your. I don't know if it's yours, but it's like this yellow plastic thing, and yes. it expands. And I tried it, and it. I don't know. I, I didn't like the way it felt. Um, well, if you do this, if you put one finger either side of your nostrils and just pull it apart, yep, gently, does it make a difference? Oh, huge! And if you if I pull the skin up in the top. Mm. Mm. Um, I'm breathing probably 30% better. 
Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and you will get used to a nasal dilator anyway. Like we have our own one. Um, and yeah, so it's, there's a few factors that feed into this. One is your boat score. If your boat score is high, you can do more with less. Like, can you imagine somebody with a boat score of 10 seconds? That person will barely walk with their mouth closed. So this is, you know, this is where it's very important to consider how you breathe during exercise is influenced by how you breathe in your everyday. And if you have your mouth open during your sleep, if you're breathing fast and shallow, a little bit faster and shallow every day, that's going to impact your breathing during physical exercise. And I think it's time that sports start considering the lungs. You know, it's the lungs that set the limits very often. You know, it's the degree of breathlessness when, when you're overly taxed. And look at what we're asking the lungs to do. One of those athletes that you've just described, the Olympic level athletes, with every breath they take into their body, they could be taking five liters of air and they could be breathing up to 50 times per minute. So that's 250 liters coming into their lungs every minute. You know, so it makes sense. How do you breathe? How well do you breathe? And how do you breathe to enhance alveolar ventilation? And understanding the whole relationship with carbon dioxide, it's not just the waste gas that people talk about. You know, known since 1904, that red blood cells, hemoglobin is a protein within the red blood cell that carries oxygen. But for hemoglobin to release oxygen, it's one of the catalysts is carbon dioxide. So as carbon dioxide increases in the blood, blood pH drops and hemoglobin releases oxygen. But if we have an idea that it's important to be taking these big breaths and more air, the more air, the better. It causes our blood vessels to constrict. It causes hemoglobin to hold on to oxygen more readily. And it can activate a fight or flight response. Is that how we want to be breathing all the time? Um, before we get into downstate regulation, which is something mm. I'm very interested in, I, you know, what you, you're mentioning sleep and mouth taping and tell me about sleep apnea. How mm. is that? I think that's sort of, a, that's a big problem for people. How does that fit into this? Very much so, but we're, we're really lacking research on it. Um, we'd love to see more research. I wrote a paper with two ear, nose and throat doctors, which I'll send on to you. And it's looking at the application of breathing during the day to improve and reduce the risk of sleep apnea. Number one, there's been plenty of papers looking at individuals who are mouth breathing during sleep. Mouth breathing during sleep narrows the airway. It traumatizes the airway, it dries it out, and the airway is more liable to collapse. And when the airway collapses, the upper airway, so I'm talking about the space at the back of the nose where it meets the throat or, you know, your tongue falling into the airway, the epiglottis or collapse of the throat itself. It can affect 50% of men over 50. And this condition has a huge negative impact on health. You know, we're talking about dementia, we're talking about cancer, diabetes, high blood pressure. And really, we want to be as men, we want to be waking up in the morning our lips are together, our tongue is resting up in the roof of the mouth, but also to have an erection. But if the man has obstructive sleep apnea or sleep disorders, they're not likely. They're often waking up with a dry mouth in the morning. Dry mouth signifies that you've been traumatizing your airways all night long. Your airways are more liable to collapse. Your tongue is more likely to fall into the airway. And that contributes as well. Disrupted sleep can increase the risk of um, erectile dysfunction. 
So we want to look at breathing light, breathing slow, breathing low. You know, I often say to people, let's think about snoring for a moment. Make the sound of a snore through the mouth and it goes like this. So now close your mouth and try and snore through your mouth with your mouth closed. You can't. So once you get your mouth taped, and by the way, I don't want to do a shameless plug, but we have a tape called Myotape, which actually surrounds the lips to bring the lips together. And um, it doesn't cover the lips. So you don't have to cover the lips to get the mouth closed. So, for example, this here would be our own tape. Now, this is the beige one, but we have blue color and different colors. So that's mm-hmm. elasticated and it's mm-hmm. pulling my lips together. Mm-hmm. So say, for example, people who might be apprehensive about wearing tape across their lips. Mm-hmm. Um, instead, you know, there's different options there. So coming back to snoring, no snoring then is when it goes like this, where there's turbulence inside in the nose, the nasopharynx, where the nose meets the throat. Now, if you were to breathe light, taking a soft breath in through your nose and a relaxed and slow, gentle breath out, and breathing lightly, try and snore with your mouth closed, try and snore through your nose, and you'll find that your snoring is less. Like when we think about the airway, the whole industry of obstructive, of sleep disorder breathing has been focused on one thing, and that's on the anatomy of the airway. But they're forgetting one major crucial part of it, and that's how hard and how fast do you breathe. The size of the airway is one thing, and the narrower your airway, the bigger the problem. But also your breathing is another thing, and the harder, the faster you breathe, and more upper chest breathe, the bigger the problem. Because if you're breathing hard and fast, There's an increased negative pressure in the airway, and this is going to contribute to a collapse of the airway. And also your diaphragm breathing muscle is mechanically linked with the upper airway dilator muscles. And when you breathe through your nose, you harness a gas called nitric oxide, which is an aircrine messenger. So by breathing using the diaphragm, the throat is stiffer, less likely to collapse. By breathing through the nose, you've got correct tongue resting posture. With your tongue resting in the roof of the mouth, it's less likely to encroach the airway. And also by breathing through your nose, there's a better position of the mandible, which is your lower jaw. So we need to be doing everything that we can do possible to get the the airway open. But the problem, I'm going to be blunt here, there's no money to be made from this. You know, I spoke at the World Sleep Congress in Rome in March 16th of this year. It was attended by 2,700 sleep doctors, 2,700 doctors. I went into the, the hall where you see the exhibitions it's everything. It's all about CPAP machines. It's big money. It's big business. You know, like it's unfortunate that, and that's why I wrote in the, the paper and I referenced, we referenced 160 scientific studies to support this, but yet nobody has done the research in the world, getting a group of people with sleep apnea asking what happens when we get these people breathing in and out through their nose with correct tongue resting posture. What happens when we improve their bolt score? Because that then will reflect on reduced chemosensitivity to the buildup of carbon dioxide. There is a phenotype of sleep apnea called loop gain. And individuals who have a low bolt score have what's called high loop gain. And it means that their breathing is unstable during sleep and it's feeding into their sleep apnea. And another phenotype is arousal threshold. This is when a person, if they have low arousal threshold, they are a light sleeper. And the problem with a light sleeper is that you get so much sleep fragmentation. 
you know, and on the AHI, which is a measurement of sleep apnea severity, you may be mild, but yet you could be still waking up feeling lousy because you've had so much sleep fragmentation. That's dysregulation of the autonomic nervous system. You know, if we've had a, a crap day, every now and again, of course, we always will have a crap day. And you go to bed that night and you're just, you can't fall asleep readily. You're just thinking and thinking and thinking and ruminating. And that's normal every now and again. But some people have that every single night of the week. 10% of the population have chronic insomnia. So 10% of the population have that. That's where we need to learn how to down-regulate and especially down-regulate before sleep. And how do you do that? You know, if you were to breathe really lightly for about 10 minutes before sleep, you stimulate the vagus nerve and you know that you're down-regulating because you feel drowsy, but you've got increased watery saliva in the mouth. And then another phenotype is upper airway recruitment. So nobody has yet in the field of research got a group of people with sleep apnea and says, what happens when we get these, this group of people? Nose breathing, light breathing, slow breathing, low breathing. In other words, looking at breathing from multidimensionals. Because that's what we work with. You know, I don't want to just focus on somebody coming in and target the diaphragm. I don't want to just focus on the biochemical dimension or resonance frequency or cadence breathing over here. Breathing is multidimensional. And the problem with breathing is that traditionally the, the focus has been on one dimension, but hasn't taken into consideration the other dimensions. You know, there's so much we can do with influencing our physiology. And it's almost that we can influence our physiology on demand. You know, earlier on, I said that the types of people that we work with, I work with snipers, for example. I am brought in to breed, teach them how to breed while pulling the trigger of a gun. Now, this is an example of influencing your physiology through your breathing. And if you think of the, the world's greatest speakers, the likes of Anthony Robbins, Tony Robbins, he has been saying for the last 20, 30 years, change your physiology. Well, how do you change your physiology? One of the most direct ways there is the breath. And coming back to the snipers, during the inhalation, the vagus nerve steps back. And during the inhalation, the heart rate speeds up a little bit. So that's more under the stress response. During the exhalation, it's primarily under the control of the body's rest and digest. So when we have a really slow and relaxed exhalation, we're stimulating the vagus nerve, which secretes the neurotransmitter acetylcholine, which causes a slowing of the heart, which increases the timing between heartbeats, and the time to pull the trigger is right down towards the bottom of the exhalation because you pull the trigger of a gun in between heartbeats. Because if you pull the trigger of a gun on a heartbeat, the heartbeat will knock you off target. So you can imagine snipers, and some people say to me, it's not very spiritual. Well, I think they've got a really important job to do. You know, unfortunately, you know, they're here, here to protect us. And unfortunately, there are people out there who, who need to be controlled so their job is to remain focused behind the sight of a rifle for one hour shift. Now, can you imagine that immense focus? And this is where how many of us have been trained how to concentrate? Education doesn't do it. But again, see, this is the whole thing. Your breathing is very much tied in with your sleep. The mind, your focus, your concentration, your attention span is also influencing your breathing, but your breathing is influencing the mind. 
your sleep is influencing the mind. All you have to do is wake up feeling lousy some morning and you know that your head is all over the place. Your breathing is influencing your sleep. Your sleep influences your breathing. Your sleep influences your mind, which if your mind is racing, that influences your sleep. We look at the three pillars. We have to look at the mind. We have to look at breathing and we have to look at sleep as opposed to normally a healthcare professional will look at one thing. They will look at sleep. Like how many people with depression have sleep apnea? Why is that not being investigated? This has been known since 20, 30 years ago, you know, and sometimes it's, I've like what I've learned over the years I've worked with always my job is working with clients coming in. And I mean, a lot of them. So I don't know how many I've had in front of me, 10,000. I've made plenty of mistakes with them too, but I've learned a lot over the 20 years, specifically working with clients, clients coming in with asthma, clients coming in with sleep issues, clients coming in with anxiety and panic disorder, and then working with elite professionals you learn a lot of stuff that you don't pick up from reading articles and papers. And that's the thing about breathing. Show me the instructor who's on the, on the front working with the clients day in, day out. That person will have learned it, you know, and I think it's important because breathing, it's, it's, we shouldn't be taking it for granted. And sometimes we do. Um, so let's say somebody comes into you Yes. And they have um, sleep disorder. We'll say they have apnea. Yes. Um, what are the, so I want to, I want to get, cause I know there's a lot of people out there listening to this who probably have this situation. Um, what do you tell them to do? What are some practical things that people with apnea can do to lessen that? Well, the first thing is, is to nose breathe both during wakefulness and sleep. Now they're not my words. They're the words of a doctor called Dr. Christian Guimano, who is a French doctor who is he's sadly passed on, but he coined the phrase obstructive sleep apnea and he developed the apnea hypotonia index. For the last five years of his life, he spoke about the critical importance of restoring nasal breathing, not just during sleep, but also during wakefulness. So that's number one, nose breathing. Number two is your tongue should be resting up in the roof of the mouth, three quarters of the tongue. So to find out your correct tongue resting posture, make the tongue that pop sounds like this. So in order to make that sound, you have to get your tongue up there. Your tongue should be up there all the time during the day. But when you wake up in the morning, your tongue should also be resting up in the roof of the mouth. Because if it's resting in the roof of the mouth, you've opened up your throat. You don't want your tongue midway or on the floor of the mouth because your tongue then is going to fall back into the airway. Number three, of course, taping them out during sleep is really vitally important for the 50% of people who wake up with a dry mouth in the morning. Now, that's just my own observation because, again, it gets very understudied. Number four, measure your boat score. Increase it to above 20 and 25 seconds. If your boat score is low, it indicates that you've got high loop gain. High loop gain is 30% of the sleep apnea population have high loop gain. They've got exaggerated ventilation to minimal increases of carbon dioxide. So let's look at it this way. Your airway collapses during sleep. You stop breathing for more than 10 seconds. During that time, carbon dioxide increases in the blood. If you have high loop gain, you're overly sensitive to the accumulation of carbon dioxide so that when you resume breathing, you resume breathing with such exaggerated ventilation 
that now your carbon dioxide goes from too high, which happened during the stopping of the breath, to too low. But when your CO2 is too low, now the brain doesn't send a signal to breathe. And this can initiate a central apnea. But also, when the brain doesn't send a signal to breathe, the output from the brain to the upper airway dilator muscles in your throat is reduced. And this can contribute to an obstructive sleep apnea. So build up your bolt score. The exercise that we practice mainly is breathe light. You can practice it. Put one hand on your chest, put one hand just above your navel. Tune into your breathing patterns. Feel the slightly colder air coming into your nose and feel the slightly warmer air leaving your nose. And slow down the speed of your breathing to the point that you are under breathing. What happens when we actually under breathe? Because there's so much bullshit out there about over breathing. But what happens when you actually underbreathe? When you take a really soft, slow breath coming into your nose and you've got a relaxed and a slow and a gentle exhalation and a very, very soft and slow, gentle breath coming in and a relaxed and slow, gentle exhalation. And the objective is to gently soften and slow down your breathing to the point that you have that air hunger. Air hunger signifies that carbon dioxide is increased in the blood. Carbon dioxide stimulates the vagus nerve. You know that you will feel this by increased water saliva in the mouth, which is telling you that you've activated the body's rest and digest. The body is prepared for the digestion of food. So this can help then to influence the autonomic nervous system because people with sleep apnea are often very much in that increased sympathetic drive. It's very important to bring that balance, especially if they have um, insomnia or lower azal threshold. The other thing about breathing light and breathing soft and breathing slow is that it changes your chemosensitivity to carbon dioxide so that your breathing now becomes lighter and slower during sleep. So if you imagine that your throat is a collapsible paper tube, if you breathe hard through the paper tube, the walls of the tube will collapse. But if you're breathing light and slow, there's less turbulence, there's less resistance to your breathing in the airway. And as a result, then there's less likelihood of collapse. Number, the next number, I can't remember, five or six, breathe nose and low. Because your diaphragm breathing muscle is mechanically linked with your throat. We can't just think of the nose and the throat as being one airway and the, the trachea and the lungs as being the lower airway. No, there's one airway. Whatever happens in the lungs will travel up to the upper and whatever happens in the upper will travel down to the lower. So no slow and low breathing is very important for sleep apnea, correct tongue resting posture and a high bolt score. Now, there are other exercises then for helping to improve function and tone of the tongue so that you get the upper airway dilator muscles in the throat. So one therapy is called myofunctional therapy or didgeridoo playing, for example, and that can reduce the AHI by 50% in people with mild to moderate sleep apnea. So coming full circle here, we have a condition out there that the gold standard of treatment is a CPAP machine, which the idea was by an Australian doctor called Dr. Colin O'Sullivan, and he got the idea from a vacuum cleaner. Instead of the vacuum cleaner sucking air, the, the vacuum cleaner pumps air, and it pumps air either through your nose or, well, ideally through your nose or mouth to splint open the airways. Think of it, continuous positive airway pressure, forcing air down your throat to splint open the airway. 
well, how about improving your breathing patterns so that you reduce the negative pressure, which is kind of contributing to the collapse of the airways in the first place? It's amazing. Like I spoke, this seems to be a tirade I'm on, but breathing has been overlooked in so many industries, been overlooked in psychiatry. 75% of people with anxiety and panic disorder have dysfunctional breathing. Lower back pain, 50% of people with lower back pain have dysfunctional breathing. Sleep, even in sleep apnea, the minimal with dysfunctional breathing is 30%. And that's those individuals with high loop gain. So that phenotype, because the field of sleep medicine has changed fundamentally since 2013 with a, a paper called by Danny Eckhart. So he brought out a paper and he said, sleep apnea is not just an anatomical issue. It's not just that your airways are compromised. There's four phenotypes. There's four characteristics. One of them is anatomical, but three of them are non-anatomical. And does it make sense if we think of the word sleep disordered breathing? Why aren't we improving our breathing patterns during the day? And I'll tell you why. It's because breathing is bad rap. Too many people have made a mess of it. Um, okay. <laughs> We're going to get to that in a second. <laughs> um, tell me about, because I tried, um, uh, increasing my carbon dioxide tolerance. Um, so I would do, I don't know if this is recommended, but I would like go for a slow walk, stop breathing, walk, walk, walk. Oh, that's really uncomfortable. Oh, that's really uncomfortable. Oh my God, I'm going to pass out. I got to breathe. And I would, <laughs> so I would do that for like a half hour a day because I was determined to get my vault score up. But um, it, I didn't. I didn't really um, didn't work. Um, like I wasn't able to do this. How how long? Like how long would it take to get my body used to these higher carbon dioxide levels, so that I could you know, reduce my rate. I think my, my whoop tells me I breathe about my sleep breathing is about 14 respirations a minute. Um, yeah. 14 is not too bad in fairness. Like 14 is normal. Well, I would know, be better so than normal. Come on. Like a breathing rate of 14. And the exercise that you had described is more simulation of altitude training. That's a stressor. Yeah. Uh, it, it, would, <laughs> it does expose your body to increase sense or increase carbon dioxide. Yeah. But I, it's probably not for long enough. You know, a better exercise would have been the exercise we just went through. Mm. And it's a very simple exercise. It's You could be practicing this for, say, 15, 20 minutes before you go to sleep, maybe when you're watching some television or something. And you have one hand in your chest, one hand just above your navel. And you're just literally slowing down everything. Mm. And you're slowing down everything to the point that you're taking about 30% less air into your body. You're doing it by slowing down the speed of the inhalation. And then you're having a really relaxed and a slow and a gentle exhalation. Now, what's even more about that is that you're going to be then exposing your body to increased carbon dioxide, say, for between five and 10 minutes. And this can be what's necessary. It's that mm. longer duration is necessary to help to reduce the chemosensitivity to carbon dioxide. But there's more to it because it will improve your blood circulation. When you breathe a little bit less air, and carbon dioxide is increasing in the blood, your blood vessels dilate. Mm. You're also getting the increased watery saliva. You're feeling sleepy, but it's also helping to strengthen the baroreflex 
So the baroreflex is a very important function in the autonomic nervous system. Or it's the pressure receptors within our major blood vessels in the aorta and in the carotid arteries. And these pressure receptors are continuously monitoring your blood pressure. And if your blood pressure increases, these pressure receptors need to be so sensitive to pick up that your blood pressure has increased. And what they do is they send a signal via the brain to the blood vessels to dilate and the heart rate to come down. So it brings down your blood pressure. Or conversely, if your blood pressure goes a little bit too low, the pressure receptors pick up on this and they send a message via the brain to the blood vessels to constrict and the heart rate to increase to normalize your blood pressure. And it's the sensitivity of, of the baroreflex which provides you very good feedback of the functioning of the autonomic nervous system. So by practicing light breathing and slow breathing, you have to improve the baroreflex sensitivity. Um, so yeah, so now just another way is do physical exercise with your mouth closed, even going for a walk with your mouth closed, because when you go for a walk with your mouth closed, carbon dioxide increases in your blood. So it's really about exposing your body to the increased carbon dioxide in order to reduce the, the body's reaction to it. Now, it's not just about carbon dioxide either. It's, we're also training our brain almost for, with neuroplasticity, you're changing your brain. And as a result, then you're changing your breathing pattern. You know, so if I look at people coming in, a classic example, people coming in with panic disorder and anxiety, and 75% of this population have this functional breathing. So what does that mean? It means that their breathing, it can be a little bit faster than normal. So the respiratory rate isn't 14 breaths per minute. It could be 16, 17, 18, 19, 20 breaths per minute. They're not breathing with good recruitment of the diaphragm. They're breathing more using the upper chest. Now, this person may have had a difficult situation in their life, and they may have been exposed to a chronically difficult situation. That's changed their breathing patterns. Their breathing becomes faster and harder because of the stressful event. But when they're exposed to chronic stress, now this breathing pattern becomes their main behavior. So now they are breathing faster and harder in upper chest. They may have a regular breathing. And this is feeding back into their anxiety. This is feeding back into their panic disorder. So the whole aspect about breathing is, I suppose it's about paying attention that it's not just the, the events that cause a change to our breathing pattern, but how we breathe will influence our resilience. And resilience is measured via, via vagal tone. And one way of improving vagal tone is by stimulating the vagus nerve, breathing nose during sleep. So you're tracking your aura ring. You will have a different night's sleep if you breathe through your nose versus if you breathe through your mouth. You'll see in terms of the depth of sleep, sleep disruptions, everything else, and whatever it tracks, I'm not sure what it tracks, heart rate variability, but I heard it's not so good. Um, but there's one example to improve HRV and resilience, get your mouth closed during sleep. By practicing the breathe light exercise, that also helps to improve your heart rate variability. But so does breathing slow when you change your breathing pattern from between 4.5 to 6.5 breaths per minute. Not that you need to breathe like that all day. But even if it was 10 minutes twice a day, it would be tremendous. By breathing low with good recruitment of the diaphragm, because with increased lung volume or tidal volume, that stimulates the vagus nerve. 
So <clears throat> I think as we as human beings, like what's the one thing I've got the most out of this in the personal level? It's my capacity to change my states. It's my capacity to be able to hold my attention. It's my capacity to be able to be more aware. And if, for example, I'm overthinking about something that I can pick up on it and that I can bring my attention down into different areas of the brain. If I go on stage to give a talk, I can access flow states almost immediately. And it's because I'm, I'm connected with my breathing, you know, and it's been, it's been a wonderful, I couldn't imagine if I did, didn't have these tools in terms of productivity, creativity, intuition. Like how can we be intuitive if we're lost in thought and education? Education is giving us the ability to think, but education is not giving us the ability to stop thinking. Education doesn't teach us how to concentrate, but in order to get through education, we need to have the capacity to concentrate. How many people have been trained how to concentrate? How many people have been trained to change their physiology in the face of a difficult situation? Because normally as human beings, we get into a difficult situation we breathe faster, we breathe harder, we have a regular breathing, we're upper chest breathing. Well, what is the body telling the brain then? When we breathe that way, the body is telling the brain that there's a threat. And the brain is here to protect the body. And all the brain wants to do is get you out of the situation. So in terms of breathing, if you want to learn how to downregulate, always think about the speed of the exhalation. If you breathe out fast, it's a stressor. Because if you breathe out fast, your brain is interpreting that the body is under threat. It's stress. But if you breathe out really slow and really relaxed and quiet and calm, your body is telling the brain that everything is okay. So there's times you want to upregulate. You can do that by breathing out fast or taking a full breath in and a fast breath out or a fast breath in and a fast breath out or a breath hold. They're stressors. They, they upregulate. And then if you want to downregulate, nose, light, slow, low. And even if people know that, because it's not just about upregulating either. There's a time to upregulate, but there's also a time to downregulate. I, I think that this um, ability to state control. Yes. Um, to be able to to know when to upregulate and when to especially downregulate, yes. I I think is just it's so essential. Um, it's you, like I've, I I just said personally here I can't my imaginative function doesn't work when I'm upregulated. Um, I need to pull that down. Um, yes. I, I I also I. I've been practicing lowering my HRV. HRV is heart rate variability. It's a um, it's a metric for how much stress your body is under and can handle. So I I test that every morning, and I can buy what I found is the key is the slow exhalation, yes. and then um, HRV uh, greatly improved that. And I, I and you know what I've been doing, Patrick, is when I do my I've just sort of learned this trick. If I exercise, um, whatever I'm doing, if I'm doing, if I'm in the gym and I'm doing sets of whatever, um, I try and rather than upregulate between the sets, I try and forcibly downregulate, which can be hard. 
Um, but then always at the end of the workout, I spent five minutes on my back, like causing a down regulation so that I can get out of that. You know, the fight's over. It's done. (laughs) Everything's okay. And before I get into sort of a, um, you know, I start my day with like a mental upregulation, I need to have that, that break. And I found that to be, um, you know, I'm 63 years old and I train pretty hard. Um, and that's what allows my body to be able to do this. And I, I never knew that before. They never tell you that they're always just like push harder, harder, this, that they don't tell you about, you need that down state if you're going to recover and the recover is where all the benefit happens. It doesn't happen in the stress, right? Yeah, I would wholeheartedly agree with you. I think it's, it's a tremendous capacity to know how to do it. Um, post-physical exercise, think about breathing nose, slow and low, simple, you know, slowing down the speed of taking that soft breath into your nose. Okay. Sometimes you can be very gassed out. Even if you have to do it through your mouth, think about slowing it down. Mm-hmm. And think about breathing low as opposed to breathing upper chest to improve alveolar ventilation. But I would totally agree with you. Um, You could get the best athletes in the world. And very often, it's not necessarily their physical performance that's holding them back, but it's going to be their mental performance. So before they get get into a ring, so for example, if it's an MMA fighter, I bring them into relaxation, first of all, down-regulate them. Because if they're too ramped up, they're more liable to make mistakes. Yeah. So I could spend 5, 10, 15, 20 minutes that they're practicing down-regulating. But now you don't want to go into the fight too, too relaxed either. So then we give them a simple tool then, smaller breath toes, then start up-regulating. And then we do five stronger breath toes to increase blood flow to the brain, to stress the body, to cause spleen contraction, to open up the airways. And then it's a matter as well for that athlete to be trained not to go into the ring with their attention stuck in their head, but to walk into that ring with their attention dispersed throughout their body mm-hmm. and that they are going to fight with every cell of their body. So this stuff, see, David, this has been, this sounds too new agey because it's been talked that way for too many decades. <laughs> but when we have a conversation like this, people gather, there's something in it that you don't have to be wearing robes or beads, or open sandals, <laughs> or you don't need any of this paraphernalia. Patrick, it's like, a branding issue. It's a bad branding. It's, a, it's branding, <laughs> totally. Like, I'll give you an example. I was given courses for anxiety and panic disorder here in Ireland in 2010. And Ireland was in such a woeful place. I was going around the country. 3,000 people attended these short courses that I was giving over about two to three years. 95% of the people who attended were women. Mm-hmm. I was bringing functional breathing and mindfulness together for anxiety and panic disorder. And I said, where are all the men? And that's how the oxygen advantage grew because I wanted to get those same techniques and yes, change them and change the language and just show, because I am a man. I use these to help with performance, not just for asthma, not just for sleep issues, but mental and physical performance. And why not then? It's about changing the languages. And it's really important for people to understand you can access flow states through your breathing. You know, so many people talk about flow. How many people are able to do it at will? You can train yourself to do that. Yeah, I just want to say for all of us who are not MMA fighters, um, 
And my guess is the audience, the amount of people who listen to this who actually get in an octagon are about zero. Uh, but there's like the people that I know that are um, very high performers on Wall Street, Silicon Valley, people like that. They do this. And I, um, I've i seen it done and I've um, had it described to me when someone, you know, is preparing for a big meeting or, you know, they're, they know they're going to be in some potentially emotionally stressed situation, whatever, whatever that is, they, you know, they'll do something, they'll do like box breathing or they do something yes. like that. And that's how they because they they want to perform at their best now not not everybody wants to or you know for whatever reason um but it's a it's a why wouldn't they want to it's because number one is because they they probably don't believe in it but they don't believe you know they have to how how are you going to know unless you give it a go you know like if it's good enough for navy seals it should be good enough for the rest of them you know well well that's um I mean, I've told this story before, but I have a, a a guy I know and he has high blood pressure and he just thinks like, well, this is just sort of my grim reality that I must accept this. I have no control over it. And I framed it in sort of a Navy SEAL kind of way. And I said, well, here's this box breathing thing. This is what those guys do. And he, because I think it was too close to the robes and beads sort of um, thinking about it, yeah. but he, he, I saw him the next day. He's like, oh, I did that thing. Yeah. Un- like my I brought my blood pressure way down. It's amazing. Like we, yes. we have agency over these autonomic functions that, that a lot of times we just think it's not going to work or how many times do I got to do this or it's not worth the investment or whatever, but I'm, I'm sorry, it works. <laughs> well, you know, Herbert Benson was a Harvard based doctor. He brought out a book in 1975 called the relaxation response about lowering high blood pressure. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's true meditation. But what does meditation ultimately do but teach you how to downregulate? Yeah. Because when you go into that state of relaxation, your breathing automatically slows down. Some people can't meditate. That's fine. Focus on your breathing Mm -hmm. and take that soft breath in and have that really relaxed and slow, gentle, silent breath out. And even do it to the point of a slight air hunger. That will help to improve and the sensitivity of the bar reflex which in turn will help to bring down your high blood pressure. And the other thing I would say is, you know, when people come into me with high blood pressure, I often wonder about two things. One is their sleep. Do they have sleep apnea Mm -hmm. or do they have high stress? And therefore you're targeting both. You're looking about how can we improve this person's sleep quality and how can we help them to influence their autonomic nervous system to dampen the stress response and activate the body's relaxation response. And, and it's going to be tied up. All these things are tied together, right? This, yes. you, if, if you see somebody who has this, I can probably guarantee you that they've got blood sugar issues. They've probably, they're obese. There's like a whole cascading package that, that goes with this. Yes. Um, yes. Um, but I think it's a vicious yeah. circle though, because if you've got lousy sleep, And the other thing is people's workloads, you know, like I understand it. The workload can be all consuming Mm -hmm. and it can literally take us over. And sometimes we just have to say like, this is, this is my life. You Mm -hmm. know, you want to put in 20 minutes, half an hour, an hour per day to devote to yourself. Like, what's the point of it all? 
Like society, it's almost sucking every bit of attention out of us. Society is, seems to be, it's, it's almost that we are working. Like sometimes the question going through my own head is because my own schedule is a bit crazy as well with travel. I was in Sydney last week. Um, I'm in Chicago this week. I'm in Ireland today. Okay. So that's my schedule, you know, and I come back then and I do several trainings and you're just wondering, well, where can I fit something in that I can help myself here? And sometimes you just have to be selfish and say, listen, I need to give myself something here. This isn't all about me giving out everything because of course, society loves that. It's almost that we are programmed, that we are giving out everything, that we're working all of those hours. What are we doing it for? And we can't give ourselves attention. And yes, I'm guilty too. You know, I do my best with it. But um, that's the things we have to be thinking about. Um, I, I want to touch on, there are a couple of other things I just want to touch on here. Sure. Wim Hof. Wim Hof yes. Yes. Um, which is a very different thing. Um, yes. Uh, so I, I, it's a stressor. Yes. So it's a, you're um, hyperventilating essentially for, I want to say 30 or 40 breaths, and then you hold, and then you uh, uh, release all the oxygen all the air out of your lungs and you hold. Um, what's up with that? It, it's a major stressor. He's an extreme athlete, Wim Hof is. You know, he's, he's performed some wonderful feats. He's got great control over his body. I don't know. You know, when people ask me the question and see my, I'm biased towards doing hypo ventilation. I'm biased towards down regulation because when you work 20 years working with sick people, you know, you do become biased in, because I'm trying to address chronic hyperventilation in these individuals. Many of these individuals are already breathing too hard and too fast. And that's keeping them in this fight or flight response. And then I have to ask the question, well, would it make sense for these people now to be doing hyperventilation, extreme hard and fast breathing? And, you know, the other thing is what's happening physiologically? Yes, you're blowing off a lot of carbon dioxide. You're driving up blood pH. Your blood vessels are constricting. You've got a left shift of the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve. There's less oxygen now getting delivered throughout the body. The heart is getting less blood flow and oxygen during hyperventilation. The brain can be getting less blood flow and oxygen. The carotid arteries can constrict by 50% during the first 30 to 60 seconds of hyperventilation. And not just that, you've got the reduced oxygen delivery due to the Bohr effect. So you have the brain and the heart. So you have hyperventilation and then you exhale and hold your breath. And of course, you can hold your breath for a long, long time because you've depleted the alarm to breathe, which is carbon dioxide. During the hyperventilation, you got rid of so much carbon dioxide from the blood. Now the brain won't send a signal to breathe. So you're stopping breathing for a long, long time. Your blood oxygen saturation is going to go down to 80, 70, 60 at 50 there's a risk of passing out once it goes below 50 percent now you've got reduced blood flow and oxygen delivery to the brain is that good so there's a lot of questions about this now you know i am in a place that i talk about this more out of an interest of breathing it's not to be critical to any technique we do hyperventilation we do it for 20 breaths we do it in and out through the nose we do a breath hold as well, but we monitor blood oxygen saturation. I don't want any of my students going below 50%. And I've heard the stories of 30%. I've heard of people drowning in baths. I've heard of shingles. 
tinnitus seems to be coming up more and more because of hyperventilation. You know, so we need to watch this space. Like, would I teach my mother this? Not in a million years. No way. Um, so I, I have a question for you. Yes. Um, I, I did, I studied Wim Hof for like three months. And then I yes. just thought like, um, this is pointless. Why am I doing this? <laughs> and, but what I do, when I do use it is for um, uh, cold exposure. So yes. If I'm in in the winter, it's very gets quite cold where I am, and we break the ice out of the pool and we climb down to the water, um, and that water is thirty three degrees, thirty four degrees, and the only way, or at least in my mind, the only way that I can manage this is like that Wim Hof hyperventilating breathing. See, maybe it just distracts me. I don't know. Is it better for me to do that or to try? Yeah, it's, it's a very interesting question, you know. <laughs> and like, I'm just going to come full circle as well because, in terms of like, I have seen genuine people getting good improvements with using the Wim Hof technique. My fear is what is actually happening. That's the only thing. That's the question I, I wonder. Um, and the other thing is, how many people are practicing it? Whereas in reality, they don't need to be upregulating. They need to be restoring their functional breathing patterns. They need to be downregulating. Yeah. Now, the studies that look, if you look at slow breathing and pain, more studies show that slow breathing is beneficial for reducing pain mm-hmm. um, versus hyperventilation. But then there has been a study, I think, from the Wim Hof community showing that hyperventilation was affecting um, improving pain, pain tolerance. I would say it's going to be individual to the person. If I get into an ice bath, I will bring my attention inwards and I will really slow down my breathing and I'm slowing down my breath. Because if I hyperventilate, it would probably set me off that I'd want to jump out of the bath because of the fight or flight response. Mm. And the other thing is when I do really slow breathing, we can improve our circulation by improving blood flow throughout the body mm. in, into the hands and fingers, except the, the, the feet. It's very common with people with hyperventilation chronic hyperventilation to have cold hands and cold feet because mm. your blood vessels constrict when you hyperventilate. So I suppose, David, I'm not going to say it's just a black and white thing. It's what works for the person. Mm. And what I would say to some people, listen, sometimes the only way for you to know whether it's going to be the Wim Hof method, if you need to upregulate or if you need to downregulate is to practice, but put your toe into the water gently. Mm-hmm. don't do the 30 hyperventilation, the long breath hold and breathe in and hold. Do five, do five hyperventilation and then exhale and hold and then breathe in and hold for five or 10 seconds. Now, what we do is we might do, we do 20, 20 hyperventilation, mm. then exhale and hold, but then we do three minutes of breathe light. So we have a stress with the hyperventilation, a stressor with the breath hold, but then a relaxation and recovery post. So it's always think about the recovery, just as you said, physical exercise, you do your exercise, but then you spend your five, 10 minutes recovering. It's the key. And also before any breathing practice, do a, do a warm up first. So we do a breathing recovery warm up just to gently expose ourselves to it. Then we go into the light. So you could go into the hyperventilation, but normally we have a kind of set routine of exercises. So it's going to be individual to individual. 
You're not going to know what's going to work best for you. Have an understanding of what the exercises do and put your toe into it gently. And especially if you have, if you have a low bolt score, which implies that your breathing is dysfunctional, don't necessarily focus on the stressor exercises, focus on down regulation, even going for your walk with your mouth closed, tremendous, getting your mouth closed during sleep, tremendous, spending 15 minutes before sleep, really slowing down your breathing. Because what happens? Like you think of your body as telling the brain all of this information. So we have the vagus nerve, 80 to 90% of the nerve fibers are from the body to the brain. If you breathe fast, your body is telling the brain that there's a threat. It's a stressor. If you breathe light, slow, low, your body is telling the brain that everything is okay. So even just understand that. And at least then you can tap into it at will. You'll know when do you want to stress yourself out a little bit? When do you want to relax your body and mind? You just, I, you, you just made it connects some dots for me that um, I was once in Hawaii and I was studying free diving mm. and my teacher was out there and we're out. It's not that deep. It's like 30 feet of water or something. And you sort of have to have the, like the wetsuit and the weights have to be. So you're just barely floating. Point. And my, when I went out there before we went out, he's like, okay, we're going to practice breathing. And I'm, so I practice hyperventilating. He's like, no, 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 no. Mm. Not, no, 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 no. And so we get out there. And again, I'm sort of like, I want to do that. <gasps> and go, he's like, no, we're not going to do that. And, um, you know, to sort of hold buoyancy and then have this very slow breathing was really weird to me. But I found that he was right. Like then you just sort of gently and with free diving, you just sort of gently do this sort of like flip and you just sort of glide. And then you're in this relaxed state and I could just, I don't know, it felt like two or three minutes. I could just like hang out on the bottom of the ocean because I wasn't in what exactly what you say. I wasn't upregulated. I hadn't thought about that, but that's, mm. and that's how people get in trouble. That's how they drown Yes, is they hyperventilate. And then they're like, okay, I'm going to go down. But then as you said, um, the, the brain gets confused and oxygen level goes way down and you pass out. It's bad. Yeah. Yes. No warning. Right. You know, and sometimes people will say, well, it's the hyperventilation, which has flooded my body with oxygen. That's why I can hold my breath for two to three minutes. That's not correct. Mm -hmm. You hold your breath for two to three minutes following hyperventilation because you have depleted the alarm to breed, right. which is carbon dioxide. Right. And I would say to anybody, don't ever hyperventilate before getting into water. And unfortunately, we hear of stories all the time. I've heard of a story of this three weeks ago, you know, and these are young kids. Yeah. These are people exactly in their twenties. It it's crazy. Yep. Crazy. Before you go, um, mm. I learned something from you that I want you to share with my people because I have nasal congestion. Mm. Um, and you and I practiced in this morning before I went to the gym and I got on the bike. I did this nasal um, decon decongestion exercise and it was amazing. So can you share yes, with me what that is? I love this thing. There's a few ways to do it, but basically it involves exhaling and holding your breath. So one way to do it would be take a normal breath in through your nose and out through your nose. You pinch your nose, you hold your nose. 
And then as you hold your breath, you just gently nod your head up and down and you continue holding your breath until you feel a moderate to strong air hunger. Don't do it if you have heart issues. If you've got anxiety or panic disorder, go easy. Don't do it if you're pregnant. So basically to do it again, you take a normal breath in through your nose and out through your nose. So it's normal. You don't hear it. It's just a normal breath in and out through your nose. Then you hold your breath at the end of the exhalation. <clears throat> you're holding your breath then and you're gently nodding your head up and down. Or you could be swaying your body. And that's just as a distraction. And you're holding and holding and holding and holding and holding. You will feel the involuntary contractions of the diaphragm. Relax into that. Keep holding your breath until you feel, you know, a fairly strong air hunger. Then let go, breathe in through your nose, but get your breathing under control. Do, do that. Wait a minute. Do it again. Wait a minute. Do it five or six times. Your nose opens up. But when your boat score is above, say, 20 seconds or so, you'll get much more permanent relief. So initially, it's kind of temporary. And the thing about the human nose is that the more you use it, the better it works. Now, another way to do it would be take a normal breath in and out through your nose, pinch your nose, hold your nose, and just walk in the spot holding your breath or go for a jog, holding your breath, a light jog, just jogging on the spot and keep going until you feel a moderate to strong air hunger. Then let go, breathe through your nose and you'll find your nose opens up. Even with covid uh, uh, well, I, I don't know about COVID, but, um, I, uh, I do it's, it works. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I know I did this this morning and I thought, uh, that's amazing. Um, what, this mm. is such a simple trick. And do you know how long that trick has been around for uh, probably thousands of years? And I, well, I have a, I have a documented 1923. Ah, wow. So 99 years. Wow. Well, we're slow learners. We sure are. <laughs> Um, Patrick, this is, this is tremendous. Um, the, if people want to get in touch with you or they're interested in your books or your work, where should they go? Sure. Thanks very much. Um, we've got one website called oxygenadvantage.com and we're also on Instagram, YouTube, and, uh, the books are all on Amazon uh, there's nine books. And then for asthma, for sleep issues, for anxiety, it, the website is butecoclinic.com. Mm -hmm. So that's B-U-T-E-Y-K-O clinic.com. So see, we have the health arm of it, which is Buteco Clinic. And then we've got the performance arm, which is Oxygen Advantage. So we had to split the two because healthy people weren't going to Buteco Clinic. So that's why we have two. Yeah. Breathing is so fundamental. It's something that everybody... I'm, most people take for granted and most of us are doing it wrong and we can make a just you know really big improvements in all kinds of things and avoid help to avoid things like cancer heart disease dementia just breathe better yeah yeah i think it's a great tool it's a great tool that's at our disposal you know it's always with us it's a friend and I would ultimately say it helps with happiness. Yeah. Because ultimately, you know, <clears throat> if we go through our entire life and if we're lost in our thoughts and lost in thinking and we're not connecting with anything around us, you know, we're missing out on a lot that life has to offer. So use your breath as an anchor to get out of your head and know how to change your physiology. It will help you. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us today, Patrick. I really appreciate it. Pleasure. Thanks very much, David. 
Antonio. Thanks, everyone, for joining us on the show today. Great to have you with us, and I hope your breathing is improved based on what you heard from Patrick today. Um, we've mentioned in a few of the podcasts around uh, keeping track of sleep and heart rate and heart rate variability, and I've gotten some questions about, like, how, how do I do that? The tool that I use is called a Whoop, and we've negotiated to deal with them 15% off, and we'll put that link down in the show notes, and of course, um, Whoop is also in the Aegis shop. Wherever you're listening to this podcast, you have the opportunity to leave us up to a five-star review, and we would love that if you would take the time to do that. If you would like to send me any comments, any questions, please send them to me directly, david at superage.com. We have some pretty amazing shows coming up. We've got um, a deep dive into how hearing works. We've got functional neurology, which is awesome. I didn't know that existed before. Some pretty fantastic stuff there. And then we've got Dr. Richard Davidson, friend of the Dalai Lama, um, expert on all things associated with neurology, meditation, and how it affects our health. So hoping that as we get into the month of August, you will all be able to join us and bring your friends. Tell your friends about this podcast. It's the only way we grow. Um, hey, on that note, um, we've passed 250,000 downloads. So that's a ton. <laughs> I'm very happy that uh, this is resonating with so many of you. Looking forward to next week. And until then, have a great week. Bye now. 